Lead us into prayer, Jeff. <laughs> All right. What were we supposed to pray for? No, I got it. I think I got it. Pray for Dawn. Yeah, that's right. All right, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you. We certainly praise you. And we ask now that you'll be in our midst as we gather to open your word. Father, we are thankful for that word. We realize with ever more clarity and with each passing day that this is the only reliable word upon which we can stand. This is the only trustworthy word to which we can commit our lives. And so, Lord, we pray that you'll enable us to give our ear to this word, that we might hear it, that we might be transformed by it. Father, as we gather, we realize that in this book there are some things that we need to hear, each of us need to hear, and so we pray that you will help us to hear them and be receptive to them, and we pray, Father, that we will meditate upon them, that we will be different, that we might be different people. Lord, we pray that you'll not only bless our time together in our study of your word, but we also ask that you'll be with those we care for and love, and we think about Bruce, we think about him not only in his recovery, we also think about him being isolated these days. We certainly pray that you'll comfort his heart and minister to him. We know that he is a strong individual, and we pray that he would be able to draw down on some of that strength of character that you've instilled in him, but also, and more than that, we pray that you'll enable him to lean upon you and draw down on your strength because that's the only strength that's sufficient. Certainly we pray for Becky as she's apart from her husband. We pray that they'll have time together throughout the week on Zoom and different things like that. But we pray most of all that he would heal and that he would be able to return home. We certainly pray for Terry Gabb's grandson. Father, we ask, committing him to you, that he would be made well and that you would strengthen him. We pray certainly in the midst of a time like this, that uh, the anxieties run high for the family, we pray that you'll bless them as they think upon him, as they pray for him, and as they anticipate his recovery. And Father, we certainly pray for Gil and Lisa, Gil especially, as he has been hallucinating uh, because of the medication that he's on for these tumors. We ask, Lord, that you'll take those tumors away. We pray that there'll be no need for the medication. We pray that you'll comfort the heart of his wife. We pray that you'll do these things, not just for the good of Gil and Lisa, but for your ultimate glory. We pray, Father, as we commit ourselves to you, knowing that we walk through the valley of Baca, even in these days and in the days ahead until we see your glory. We pray that you'll comfort us and keep us. We pray that you'll surround us with your goodness and love. And we pray that you'll testify to your wisdom in the scriptures, that we might lean upon you in your providence and know your tender care and mercy toward us. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians can you speak more into the mic? Jim oh, yeah. Hamilton's having a hard time hearing you. Yeah. Yep. How's that? Better. Okay. All right. Could you repeat the prayer? <laughs> 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 
Moving right along. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5. And uh, uh, I think, uh, Don, do you have it? Yes, I do. Why don't you read the first 20? Uh, why don't you read the first 20 verses? Okay. You're chapter 5? 21 verses. 21. Okay. Chapter 5. Okay. Uh, do I need a mic? Oh, yeah. Do you want to get him a mic? Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you were light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, Awake, you who sleep. Arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, Submitting to one another in the fear of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so last time we were together, we thought a little bit about some introductory uh, matters. And uh, as we thought about some introductory matters, we remembered that, uh, we remembered that the Ephesian church was established in quite a different uh, quite a quite a different kind of locale, but in some ways very much like our own. And uh, we see how much like uh, the Ephesian church is to the present day when we look in the, these very first uh, uh, verses of chapter 5. There's a lot here that we can say to ourselves, boy, this looks a lot like us. And uh, remember, this is an overview. So we'll go back and we'll look at any one of these things that you want to look at. But what I want to point out to you is that we are uh, to be different from the world and we are not to be partners with it. And uh, this idea of partnership is captured in the word koinonia. And oftentimes you have heard this word in terms of fellowship. You know, the koinonia is fellowship. You've heard that numerous times. I think part of the problem that has attached itself to that word is the idea of 
our kind of fellowship has now been invested in this word. And so our kind of fellowship is showing up a little bit early for a thing like this, showing up a little bit early for church, maybe staying later after church, grabbing a cup of coffee, and then, and then enjoying the company of other people. And that's oftentimes thought of as koinonia. We have fellowship one to another. And I oftentimes think of that in distinction to what we have here in this word as something like fire hall fellowship, right? We all gather at the fire hall, get a cup of coffee, and we enjoy the presence of each other. And that, there's something redeemable about that, and I don't want to disparage that in any way. I think there's value in it. I think we ought to continue to do it. But that's not, that's not this term. When you think about the term koinonia, it really does have partnership at its root. In other words, there's this idea of investment, personal investment. So, for instance, when you have, uh, when you have Sig who comes here then early in the morning and and he says uh, to Don, hey, Don, I got this great idea. Uh, we need to start a business together. What kind of business uh, do you want to start? It's news to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is something he was going to spring on you. And, uh, you know, I, I thought he was going to talk to you this morning about it, but apparently he didn't. And uh, so he's, I'll, I'll, I'll leave the type of business to, to Sig, but Sig is going to spring this on Don and and uh, here's the catch. He's going to say to Don when he does talk to him, uh, Don, you need to come up with 50% uh, of the capital for this investment. We need to partner in this. I'll, I'll put in 50, <clears throat> you put in 50, and we'll, uh, we'll move forward with this business. And that's the idea of koinonia. There's real partnership. There's, there's real investment that's taking place. And so... Uh, you know, for instance, somebody comes into the church and says, look, I'm a missionary and I'm wondering if, if uh, you'll support me in this. Uh, I'll go and put in the sweat equity. You put in the financial equity and then and we'll be in partnership for this. And that's something what, uh, like what you find in the New Testament with Paul and say the Macedonian church. You know, as he's out, the Macedonians are giving uh, to Paul even under their poverty. And uh, that's the partnership that he describes in the book of Philippians. We partnered in the gospel. We had koinonia in the gospel. And so when he says in this text, do not have a partnership with these things. Notice what he is not. Notice what he, the, you are not to have a partnership with. Sexual immorality. All impurity or covetousness. Um, Filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking, <clears throat> sexual morality, impurity, and covetousness have no inheritance in the kingdom of God and with Christ. And so those are the things that he's saying quite emphatically, you are not to be partners with. You're not, not to have a partnership with those things. And we talked about that some last time we were together, Don. Oh, Don, I'm sorry. We talked about these things the last time we were together. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I have a question regarding that, because I know, um, you know, doing the transcript, I, I heard uh, last week. But in verse 4, uh, where it talks about uh, my translation, says filthiness or foolish talking. But it's a foolish talking, I guess, that I have a question about. If those of you who know me well that I know that I can get so many times. And I'm just wondering... Where does that where is that line drawn? I mean, I don't think that we're to be uh, sourpusses. Um, 
I, I think that Jesus was, you know, certainly joyful. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, the Bible does say that a merry heart does good like a medicine. So where is that line drawn um, between, you know, what constitutes foolish talking? Where, where do we need to be careful? Yeah, um, I think that, uh, I think I have a tendency to agree with you. I don't think that the line is easily drawn, right? I think that, um, you know, I think when you, when you think about, uh, you know, the way I presented the last time, for instance, was there's a clear difference between, say, uh, what we might call swearing and what I put up on the board was profanity, taking the Lord's name in vain, taking the things of the Lord and uh, using them uselessly. There's that, and then there's, uh, then there's what we might call vulgarity, which is sort of the the uh, general um, usage of, of language that we consider to be common or foul. Um, and then there's, and then, there's um, then there's even a step from that, and, and I describe that in terms of, you know, kids, guys in high school, you know, discovering their body and then, you know, handling that by handling it with sort of that kind of, that, um, that sort of uh, immaturity that we all know um, happens in you know in high school with with regard to young young kids and I would say to you that um, uh, the only thing I would say differently than the last time at this point is I I worked in a factory for about four years and one of the things that I realized I realized um, I thought coming out of high school and moving into sort of the adult world that things would be different. Um, I thought to myself, these are adults, right? I'll, I'll never forget, I, I, I must have been sort of a naive kind of uh, teenager because <clears throat> I'll never forget the first time, uh, while, while I was still, uh, I was probably 18, but an adult who was probably in his early 40s lied, lied right in front of me. I, I knew that we did that as kids, right? But I thought once you became an adult, like that kind of stuff, you just didn't, you, you, you tried to avoid that sort of thing, and this person did it so easily. kind of shocked me. But uh, the same kind of shock hit me when I went into this factory and realized that I, I was now, I was now in, a, in an adult context with kids that never left the locker room from high school. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I realized, right, that that was, this is, this is in my mind, this is kind of the, the foolish, uh, kind, you know, kind of the crude joking and jesting that constantly comes from, you know, this kind of immaturity. That, that was my thought about it. But the bishop has something over Well, I, I was just thinking back about the admonition somewhere about not debating about endless genealogies. It could mean that, as sometimes happens in churches, that you end up debating forever on very secondary matters and mm-hmm. wasting everybody's time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or, or maybe even matters of Adiaphra, you know, yeah, where you just yeah, kind of, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so is that? That's foolish. There's another question. Matt has something over here. I like the concept of not partnering with the world. Is that implied in here, or is there a specific Verse 7, I think, is uh, where, it, verse 7. Uh, Therefore, do not become partners with them. What, what, uh, do you have a, a different word? Yeah, Partakers. Partakers. Yeah. Okay, yep. Same thing. Same word. Would have that been the word 
And I would have been aware of this yep. term before in the needle. Yep. Yep. Verse 7. John, you want to follow up on that, or is that... No, no, that's fine, yeah. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's hard sometimes to you know, uh, draw the line. So, so what you're saying is that my cheesy jokes are permissible. No! <laughs> In certain contexts. I mean, when you're alone. <laughs> How about Saturday through Thursday? <laughs> yeah, Saturday through Thursday is good. That works. That time works well for me. Yeah. Um, so that yeah oh so uh, so this is uh, we're not to have partnership with them now why is that verse eight tells us you were but now are and uh, this is I think a pivotal verse in this section it helps us to understand what it is that Paul's been saying uh, before this he says for at that time you were darkness but now you are light in the Lord, walk as children of the light. Now, what I want you to understand is this, because this is, this is a concept I think that we need to grasp as Christian people. Um, and there's a sense in which you were something, darkness, now you are, you are what? Light. Now, what is he saying? He is saying that the state of affairs that exist at this present moment are this, these. You are light in the Lord. And we describe this as the indicative. If somebody is using the indicative, they're indicating something. They're showing you something about something that is. And what Paul is showing us about each one of us who profess faith in Christ, he's showing us, you are this. That's what he's showing us. Now, the wonderful thing about that is that he said, he, he's telling us something about the state of affairs that exist, but then he says this. Now, because you're this, walk as children of the light. Now, think about that for just a minute. We know that our tendency will, to be, will, will, will be to walk, yes, in the light, but we know that because we were darkness, we will have a tendency to shade into the darkness every once in a while. If not, fully open the door and enter into it. And what he's telling us then is that you are this. So stop going into the other room, the dark room. Walk in the light. And this is the imperative that we always talk about. So there's a, there is a, an, an indicative and an imperative to the gospel. The indicative describes what God has done for us. This is the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. The first three chapters tell us what God has done for us and why we are this. And because now you are this, be this. Here's the imperative, the command. Be what it is you now are. Remember when I was talking to you about my friend and I said my friend uh, was uh, being exploited by his dad whose name was the same as his name and, and, uh, and so on and he was yeah. sending all the bill collectors to him. 
And, uh, and, and I gave the example, I said, what if the lawyer did everything for my friend? What if he had changed his name, his identity, his place of location, you know, everything? What if the lawyer had done everything for him? And then said to him, now all you have to do is live according to this new identity, but every once in a while my friend would, you know, hand out his old identity, right? The darkness would follow him because he would be living according to his old identity. But all he has to do is live according to his new identity. Now, we're not going to live according to our new identity until we're either dead or Christ returns. But the point is we're able now to live according to the new identity. Matt's got something to okay. I'm just going to leave this over here. <laughs> we have a saying at Pine Valley, if you know the Savior, it'll change your behavior. Yeah. That's what you're saying. Yeah. Is that too clever or cute? Or it is good. Oh, I like that. That's good. No, that's good. I like good. it. Yeah. I, and I think... What's that? We're going to say it's good for children, but it's good for us, too. Yeah. <laughs> I think that one of the things that I think it, that we need to keep in mind is that it, it's... I mean, for instance, I think it's good to have those kinds of very, you know, um, slogan-like things because they, they have a tendency to remind us of the deep things that we're talking about, right? And they give us a handy way to think about them. So it's like the five solos of the Reformation, you know. Five solos of the Reformation tell us some deep things about the gospel. But they do it in such a way that they're handy. I think it's an, another way to think about this is, is like Martin Luther used to, used to preach the gospel to himself. He used to preach the gospel to himself by reminding himself of the Apostles' Creed and the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer and those kinds of things. And he used to say to himself, this is what I'm to believe, and I believe this, you know, that sort of thing. And I think those kinds of things are good to not only remind us of who we are, but also, but also to help us to understand this is how we're to live. We're to live in a different way. So we're not to be partners with uh, we're not to be partners with the darkness. We're to be partners with the light, and so walk in the light. You know, I was uh, there's a, I'm going to put a quote up here um, uh, after this one, I guess. Uh, but uh, this is remember I was telling you the last time about the the Ephesian uh, Artemis. Uh, temple and how part of that was that uh, you know there was magic connected to that cult and there were you know love potion number nines connected to that and uh, and 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 so what happens if you if you walk in front of the Artemis uh, temple you've been heavily involved there and uh, all of a sudden you end up feeling tempted to go back in there and I think Paul is saying look that's not a love potion number nine that's your temptation to go back in and, and, and be a partner with the darkness. And so don't do that. Just to kind of show you, this is the quote I had in mind. It's, uh, it's from John Calvin in his sermons on the Ephesians. And he says, they, they, certain women, are decked out in peacock fashion so that a man cannot pass within three foot of them without feeling, as it were, a windmill sail swirling by him. And I would add a, a, a windmill swirling within him. You know, um, and and that's the idea of the temptation. That's the idea of of say the 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 pool of the Artemis cult 
It's not magic. It's not an incantation. But it is, in fact, uh, our own sinful desires seeking to get us to partner with them again. So I, I just think that's a, a, a helpful thing when you think about it. Um, I, I think I told you about this before, about my, uh, about my brother-in-law. Um, maybe, I, maybe I did, maybe I didn't. He was, he was in prison for uh, three years uh, for drug use. Um, and I went to visit him. He was down in Chester. And I went to visit him once. And I was sitting in the, in the waiting room with him. And we were, we were just talking. Uh, he had been in prison two years already. It was a, it was a pharmaceutical prison. He, you know, it was a place where they specialized in sort of um, drug abusers and, and helping them clean up. And we were sitting there, again, it was about two years, maybe even on his third year. And we were sitting in this waiting room. Do you remember that, remember that show that they used to have where they used to have, a, it was called Intervention? And they used to follow these drug addicts around and they used to, they used to film them, and they would even film them shooting up, that sort of thing. Well, this happened to be on TV in the pharmaceutical prison in the, you know, in the area where you can visit with prisoners, right? This intervention was on TV, and, and all of a sudden, my brother-in-law became visibly, um, he became visibly disturbed, and I, I asked him, I said, what's the matter? And he told me that watching that person shoot up on TV had triggered uh, uh, in him a real desire, and uh, and he was struggling with that at, at that time. Uh, you know, that was three years, and and uh, and then he got out, and just to end the story, then he got out, and he was clean for almost three years. So he was clean for almost a total of six years, and then started using again, and eventually he took his own life. But the idea, right, is the idea is that here's the point: those sinful desires with which we partner can kill us, quite physically, can kill us. And they'll kill us eternally um, in hell. And so, you know, the partnership leads to your death, is what it does. Um, yeah. I don't want to disrupt the class, but that, that begs, to me, a huge question. How can we, as fallen human beings, truly recover from sin? Because, I mean, the example of your brother-in-law is huge. I, I, I can relate to that with people in my family and, and a lot of other, I don't need to go into the details, but I would think to, if, if God is a merciful, loving God and your brother-in-law didn't repent before he died. He did? Well, that, well, I would imagine, yeah. But God would have mercy. I mean, how, how do you ever fully overcome the power of sin? And I know the Holy Spirit is certainly capable of freeing us from that, but I just think, how do we really beat that? Yeah, well, what, how, we really, how we really beat that is, is this. You want to get a pen that writes first. <laughs> That's how we beat that. Huh? Wait, wait, no. And, and I think yeah. it's the gospel. We wrote the word okay. gospel. And, I mean, here's the, here's the thing. If we don't believe that, if we don't believe that this has the power not only to save us, but to transform us, then we're wasting our time, right? Um, I mean, my brother-in-law rejected the gospel numerous times as it was given to him. So, so he would be a classic case of an unbeliever who was killed by his own right temptations. Um, but, but the point is that, 
You know, I know, this is what we talked about the last time. I know men who believe that really no one can, no Christian man can overcome sexual temptation in, in his life. No man can do it. And I've been told that if men tell you they can, they're liars. And I, and I want to simply say, then what good is the gospel? Really, what good is the gospel? The gospel has no power to overcome this sin or that sin or some other sin, then I'm pretty much done with the gospel then. If you're going to tell me the power that, that the gospel doesn't have power to save and the power to deliver me from sin, even in this present life, then I'm, I'm pretty much done. I can do something else. But could it be that the good news of Christ is that he provides the power in spite of our weakness, in spite of the evidence of our life as a failure. Yeah, but what what you what it, what you seem to be saying though is that I can be saved from hell, but maybe because I don't take that power that's offered to me, never overcome sin in my life. And I, and I think Paul would probably say to you, yes, we're we we have a Romans seven life, but if we're not always striving to overcome the sin that seeks to dominate our lives. And I think Paul would say this. I think he would say, and, I, and you can see it in Galatians 5, if, you, if your life is characterized by patterns of sinfulness rather than by incidents of sinfulness, um, you have reason to question whether or not this transforming grace has actually been leavened into your life. You know what I mean? Um, I mean, the way I read this, way I, the way I read the Old Testament is this: when I when I look at the Old Testament, um, and and do this sometime, do this sometime. Go look at the book of Leviticus, okay? And when you look at the book of Leviticus, you'll find two, you'll find two ideas. You'll find. Let me try another. One. You'll find two ideas. You'll find. You'll find sins that are, oh, we hit the jackpot. Maybe. Unintentional, that's right, maybe. We find sins that are unintentional, and, and the sacrificial system is full of dealing with unintentional sins. And then you find, in one spot, you find, and it's Leviticus 16, you find that the the Day of Atonement deals with high-handed sins. What are those? Those are rebellious sins. Like intentional rebellious sins. Now what does that tell you? I'll tell you what, it tells you this about the Old Testament believer. Something that we don't, we don't typically think about. It tells us that the Old Testament believer's life was to be a lot like the Christian life we think about today. That that they were to be holy and that the sacrificial system really dealt with them as believing people such that they, they had all of these unintentional sins that needed to be dealt with because sin was part of their life, word, thought, and deed. But they weren't always out there committing high-handed rebellious sins. It wasn't like every day the Old Testament believers going, I think I'm going to 
you know, fornicate today or commit adultery today or murder someone today. And, you know, that's the way we have a tendency to think about the Old Testament believer is that they just did whatever they wanted and they were willy-nilly. No, the Old Testament believer was trying to live a life according to the law of God and was sinning while they did it, but, but you know, sinning in such a way that they weren't committing rebellious sins all the time. And so when you get to the Leviticus 16, you get to the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement was when even high-handed sins were forgiven. And the idea was, the idea was that God forgives even those. But if your life is characterized by this kind of sin, then you're probably missing the gospel point. But if your life is characterized by this kind of behavior, you see, this kind of behavior is sins of incident. This kind of behavior is sins of pattern. That's the idea. And that's what you find in the New Testament. And so when you think about the Old Testament believer versus the New Testament believer, you don't think about the Old Testament believer being really an unbeliever at heart. No, what you think about when you think about an Old Testament believer is somebody who believes in the promise of the coming of Christ to save, but they have revelation that is given to them in a progressive way. So, for instance, maybe they live on that, that, on that part of the progression before the climax comes in Christ. But in addition to that, that means they also have an experience of believing life that runs parallel to this. So that their believing experience is never going to rise above the revelation that God has given. It's always going to run parallel with it. Now, the only exception to that would be, say, the prophets. The prophets would have an experience that may transcend uh, the believing experience of just a typical Old Testament saint, which was why, which was why when you get to Pentecost, Luke says, uh, you're all going to be prophets, right? And we say, oh, we're all going to, we're all going to speak about future events. No, you're all going to have a level of intimacy that was enjoyed by the prophets in the Old Testament that not everybody enjoyed. And that, that's the difference. Does that make sense? Do you want to talk about that a little more? I mean, it's a little far afield from where we were, but it's in a, this is important, I think. you want to... Yeah, now. Just a distinction that you maybe clarify. In the New Testament, uh, Jesus said, when I leave, I'm going to give you a comforter. So my understanding is we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us all the time. Yep. I'm sure how that worked in the, in the Old Testament with yep. believers. It seemed like it came on and off. So how did they walk in obedience? We have the power of Christ in us, so we have, in a sense, we have no excuse. And it's, although they have our flesh, well, I wonder how, how did they, or how were they able to be righteous when they didn't have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Well, see, and that's the that's the thing where where there's disagreement. I I think what they I think in order for anyone to be saved, they had to be made alive by the Spirit. I think they did have the Holy Spirit indwelling them, and I think that that Holy Spirit gave them an experience that was at a level with the existent revelation that they had. I think there are examples in the in the Old Testament, like for instance. Saul, where the Holy Spirit comes upon him that departs from him, but I don't think he's indicative of a believer who has a believing experience. What about like Samson? You know, Samson's spirit yeah. 
And my question is, is why would Jesus say, I'm you know, I'm gonna give you a comforter? Like it seems like it's something new, like the new covenant, here's something new. So I yeah, that's where I'm just questioning that. Yeah, I think so for instance, I think there are um so I think there are different infillings for different tasks. And I think one of the things that we might say about Samson is that for the tasks he was, you know, like when the Holy Spirit would come upon him and fill him, he would have, you know, great strength. And I do believe that we have different infillings for different times in our life. I think that's, that's, I think that's pretty clear in Scripture. But I think also uh, what I would say, if, if we can say that Samson is a believer, I think he was yeah. a believer. Then I think that I think that when uh, we think about him, we think of the Spirit being or dwelling in him. I think the Spirit coming upon him is talking about those infillings for those tasks. And I think that's the. I mean, for instance, if you if you say that the Holy Spirit doesn't indwell a person, how do you how do you account for their salvation? If the Spirit makes us alive in Christ, right? How do you account for their believing life and? Um, you know, for instance, you mentioned like I'm gonna I'm gonna give you uh, another paraclete, right? Another comforter. I think, for instance, like like I was saying, the the idea of of the intimacy enjoyed by the New Testament believer is not the same as the Old Testament. So when when he says I'm gonna I'm gonna give you another comforter. Um, he'll what, teach you all things. Right? He'll teach you all things, right? But, but there's a sense in which, think, well, think about it this way, right? The Old Testament believer had to be circumcised in their heart. That circumcision of the heart happened by the Holy Spirit. In the same way, like, the person has to be regenerate in heart today. That happens by the Holy Spirit. But I think the idea of, I'm going to send you uh, another comforter has more relation to Jesus being there in the in the culmination of the covenant such that he's saying I'm going to give you another paraclete not not that I'm going to give you something you never had but they did they, they, they never did have Jesus there in the midst right so he's saying I'm going to give you another comforter and the idea is when you read Acts chapter 2 it's not going to be like it was in the Old Testament that other comforter that I'm going to give you it's going to Make it such that you you have the intimacy that was enjoyed by the prophets per se, and uh, so that's the idea. I, as I read, you know the so the the other comforter is, and I'm going to be gone. You're going to be you're going to be receiving him in a way that you haven't received him before. The other thing I think it, it you know just just throw it out there is, you know when um, you know Jesus is often saying things like that 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 have more of a reflection on the disciples and where they were at a time at, and where they will be. And they have relevance to us, but the relevance is a little different. So for instance, like in John 13, we, we oftentimes think about that whole idea of um, love, love one another, a new commandment I give you to love one another. Notice that commandment just for a minute. Uh, you don't have to turn here, but if you, if you want to, that's fine. J John 13. He says, um, a new commandment, verse 34, uh, I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And that the point of that is, by this, people will know that you're my disciples. 
And we oftentimes think of that like, well, of course, if we love one another. But the point that Jesus was making at that moment to the disciples was, people know you're my disciples now because you're with me. Right? I mean, you're following me around all, all these places. You're with Jesus. You know, that, remember in Acts chapter, I think it's 4, where they, where they say, these men were with Jesus. You know, everybody knew they were with them. But how is it, how's it going to be after he's gone that people know he's, uh, they belong to him? It's going to be how they treat one another. And so here Jesus is absent. That makes a little difference, a little bit of a difference for us, but it's the same. Jesus is absent from us, never was in our, in our midst. Um, the question then is, how do people know that we're with Jesus? They know we're with Jesus by how we, how we love one another. And so I think it's the, the whole idea of with that really is important there when you think about it. Yeah, Don. I think it's also important, and I, there was much confession talks about this too, in terms of justification, how uh, um, both Old and New Testament saints were uh, imputed with the righteousness of Christ. I mean, Abraham believed God, and was accounted in his righteousness. David said, blessed is the man uh, whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered, and who the world will not impute sin. Um, and so, uh, Old Testament and New Testament believers both would have had the Holy Spirit in some measure, but you know, when Jesus says, uh, you know, I, I, I agree with you when he says a new uh, a comforter, I'll, I'll give you a comforter. It's it's the Holy Spirit now uh, in, in, in greater uh, measure, and that uh, uh, you know, it, it, it's that Jesus is always with them, which which he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I want to say something. Uh, that you just raised on that I think is important um, when you think about this. The, the whole idea of um, the whole idea of reckoning is important here. You remember in, in uh, Romans chapter 6 where he talks about reckoning yourself dead to sin and alive to Christ? Remember that? And he also talks about it in Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, he talks about, um, he says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and God, will, the God of peace will be with you. Um, think on these things. That's the idea of reckon these things. Reckon these things true and put them into practice. In other words, in other words, when we reckon something, what we're doing is we're taking mental stock in it and saying, this is true, right? And sometimes, have you ever been in that situation where you're not, where you're not sure if you can actually believe it, right? And you gotta sit down and you gotta say to yourself a few times, this is true, this is actually true, right? Maybe it was. Maybe it was. When you married that woman, <laughs> the day after that wedding, you said, no, 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 this is true. This is what you said, right? Today I say it. Yes, this is true. This is true. <laughs> right? And, uh, and you, you reckon that to your account. You say, this is, this is true or that's not true. This is the idea of preaching the gospel to ourselves, taking, taking mental stock of it. And so... 
we need to we need to let all that Paul said in the first three chapters sink in because because Paul was saying to us, this is what God has done for you. This is what you now are. And, and so you sometimes say to yourself, I can't believe it. No, no, no. That's not the response. I believe it. And because I believe it, I act upon it because it is true. And, and it's not, this is the thing that we need to be careful of. The, this is where the Roman Catholic Church would say to us, you guys have a fiction. This whole idea of imputation, this is where we get the imputation of Christ's righteousness. This is the word for it. Christ's righteous, righteousness is reckoned to us. It's imputed to us. It's at this point that the Roman Catholic Church says, you guys have a fiction. Because all you do is you click your heels together and say, I wish it were so, I wish it were so, I wish it were so. <clears throat> and it's not so. Because it's a fiction. And what we say is, it is not a fiction. Because it is true that Christ reckoned me. He imputed his righteousness to me that so that now that when the Father sees me, he sees me as righteous. And we say, well, what's your answer? And they say, well, the sacraments infuse grace, pour grace in, they infuse grace that I might, and here's what chapter 16 of the Council of Trent says, that I might work for, and they even use the idea, the term, merit my salvation before God. So the, there's the infusion of grace by the sacramental life that I might work for my salvation. And so when I get to the end of the life, I'll merit salvation before God. So, it, so with, the, with the Roman Catholic Church, it begins with sanctification, and it culminates with justification, final justification. Because of what? I've merited through the infusion of grace, the ability to work and so work and so merit my life before God. That's the difference. And they say, we're, we're not talking about, we're not talking here about a, a fiction. We really believe that grace is infused or poured into us such that we can work for this in the end. And that's not what we're saying. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying this is, there's an imputed righteousness that's given to us here by Christ, in Christ, that we might, that we might put these things into practice. Well, I'm going to end there, but do uh, you have any, any thoughts, last-minute thoughts or questions or comments for you? And, and, then, and then, of course, with Rome, it's not even so much... Sorry. With Rome, it's not even so much necessarily at the end of your life. You might have to spend thousands of years of drink for you until you have that... Well, you will. I mean, that's the point, right? You, you're not going to... I mean, you're not going to get in uh, on the basis of... I mean, this is just the way they, this is just the way they have it, right? I've, I've, I've shown you this before, I think. Um, here's the, the idea of heaven above the line, hell below the line. They'll say when the baby's born, you better get that baby baptized because that, ba that baby's totally in hell. But once they receive the grace of baptism... Grace is infused in them. If they die, boom, at that moment, they might go to heaven, right? Because at that moment, at the moment of their baptism, they have a complete infilling of God's grace. However, they live, and they say no to mama, and they do other things, and as they say no and they do these other things, they lose, they lose the grace that was given to them at baptism. However, 
there is the sacramental life. And so the sacramental life is I go, I go to confirmation. And when I go to confirmation, I get a little grace. And when I go to mass, I get a little more grace, right? But as I sin, what? I lose grace. So it's this constant battle of trying to be up and down, and up and down, and up and down. And if I commit a, if I commit a, a sin, a mortal sin, I drop below. I'm all the way done. What do I do? Do I come back and be baptized? No, I can't be baptized. The Roman Catholic Catechism says that I do the second plank of justification. I do penance. Well, I creep back above the line through penance, right? And as I creep back above the line and take the sacraments of the sacramental life, I try to get up. But the bottom line is, on the day of my death, I got a lot to pay for yet. And I'm going to purgatory to pay that off. And that's the idea. The idea is that Christ did not wholly pay for my sins. I am going to have to pay for someone in the end. And that is a terrible gospel. That's a pathetic gospel. If you ask me, that's, if you, <laughs> I would never, if, if, if I was looking for a good news gospel, this would not be it. Yes, yeah, sign me up. Sign me up. Anyway, let's, uh, is there anything else on that? No? All right. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day, for the time you've given, for the life that we have in Christ, for the time that we have to open the scriptures. Father, bless us and strengthen us, we pray uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Some translations, the term presumptuous sins or sins presumptuous yeah. sins is, is that your kind of